I think a lot of young people don't realize that life's not a straight line. You've got to realize that you're talking about performing over a lifetime, not performing in three years or two years or five years or ten years. That you've got to realize that what type of reputation do you want at the end of 50 years of work? Thanks for joining us for Building Pakistan, a conversation with Pakistan's beloved institution builders to explore how they've built and really continue to build this young country. I'm Benji Williams from Amal Academy, and today's guest is Mr. Hussain Dowd, who's the chairman of Dowd Hercules, a holding company that has ownership of institutions such as Hub Power, one of Pakistan's largest independent power producers, and Ingro Corporation which is one of the largest fertilizer manufacturers and the parent company of Engro Foods, which it sold a 51% stake to a Dutch company last year for over $450 million, closing one of the largest foreign investments in Pakistan to date. Mr. Daud is also chairman of both Hub Power and Engro Corporation and is also the co-founder and chairman of the Karachi School of Business and Leadership, which he launched in 2012 through a strategic partnership with the University of Cambridge. He's involved in really too many other things to mention here, but one fascinating thing about his journey is how he started as an entrepreneur for almost 30 years within his family business, learning critical lessons and developing his entrepreneurial skill set and mindset until the opportunity presented itself to venture into the world of entrepreneurship. His journey of 74 years so far contains so much richness and insight, and we're thrilled to explore a few of these in this conversation. Great. Should we get started? So, Mr. Chairman, your journey is really fascinating and and I'm grateful to to dig into it a little bit and I wanted to focus more on the period um, around 2000 but I think the context is is really helpful leading up to that just briefly and you were born in Bantwa India from a Maimon family <laughs> and I think this is amazing because uh, Abdul Sattariri also shares the same, a similar background and writes about it a lot in his autobiography. I was born in Bombay. Okay. Well, your family's from Bantwa, or no? Well, father was, okay. mother was from, mother's from Bombay. Okay, you were born in Bombay. And speaking of your family, you've said in your Harvard presentation that the family's been in business for 1,400 years, 46th generation. Oh, oh, 46. Is that correct? No. No, that is the longest uh, uh, surviving family business. Okay. It's a Japanese one. Okay, okay. No, no, we've been in business, for, I guess, coming up to 100 years. Okay. I was wondering about that. <laughs> I was quite fascinated. And in terms of the business, there's spices, uh, cotton, cotton yarn. I guess you were the cotton yarn king of India, vegetable ghee. Uh, this is before you were working was. in the business. So the before family. I was born, in yeah. fact. <laughs> and you completed your engineering in metallurgy from the UK and your MBA from Kellogg. 
and moved back to Pakistan in 68. 68, yes. And pretty immediately, your career in business took off when you returned. Wow. And, and I wanted to ask about this path to becoming an entrepreneur in that you had 30 years or so where you were working in the family business. And, and to me, this seems like an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur within an existing business. And so I, I was just kind of wondering what your path was to entrepreneurship, what you were learning at this period. How was it important for who you would become as an entrepreneur? Well, you're trying to uh, uh, differentiate between something you call entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship. Um, actually, entrepreneurship, is, is, in my opinion, is a way of thinking. Mm. And uh, one doesn't, in my opinion, uh, one doesn't, as uh, you might say, progress from entrepreneurship to entrepreneurship. It's something that uh, goes on uh, right from the beginning. The only thing that it changes is the context. And you were working hard. Late 90s, you had this opportunity in this fertilizer project in Sri Lanka. Essentially, you were overseeing the, the fertilizing, fertilizer um, venture with the family. And this project for a secondhand fertilizer acquisition was there for $3 million that you were able to negotiate. And you said that you... <clears throat> You were frustrated because you couldn't grow Dowd Hercules fertilizer in the way you wanted to. And I'm just wondering what this, if you could tell us a little bit about this uh, moment in time when you were hoping to buy that project. Uh, and you had mentioned that you felt a stagnation, that you weren't able to buy it, that you didn't get the necessary approvals or support and that you realized at that time that you lost some momentum. What was this sort of inflection point like for you? Basically, it was an opportunity, hmm. an opportunity in which uh, one identified a, a, a fertilizer project which could be procured. So we negotiated with the Sri Lankans and we were able to, um, were able to agree to a, a price of $3 million. It's quite sad that there was this opportunity hmm there, which basically we had computed the downside and the upside and we had computed everything about it financially. And it's unfortunate that we, we allowed that opportunity to, to uh, slip through our fingers. Mm. And there's a, there's a sadness, of course, but the most important thing is this that the stars come together, you know. Mm. There's a point in time when either you seize the opportunity or it's gone. So here was a situation where all the stars came together. And it was just a Y-E-S that was required, a yes. Everything was arranged. And it is sad to, to mm. let that opportunity go. But what did it do? It had a profound impact on the organization. Mm -hmm. There was a, a retardation that takes place. 
retardation to uh, one's growth aspiration that opportunities. Hmm. And it sounds like it had a profound impact on you, if I'm not reading into things too much. And at the same time, there was, you started buying these Ingro shares. You know, what happened is that in life, and this I suppose is applicable to everyone, that when one door closes, you look for a window. Mm. I found a window. Mm. And you know, again, it's part of the same entrepreneurial thinking. The fact of the matter is this, that um, uh, my uh, analysis was the fact that there was an opportunity here to uh, invest in uh, in uh, in Anglo and buy Anglo shares, hmm. which I did. Hmm. And you started buying Anglo shares. Eventually, you controlled twenty seven percent, and eventually much more of the company. And the management got a bit worried, and. We can save that part of the story for in a little bit, but I'm just wondering, first of all, wh why did you feel that this was a good strategy for um, sort of moving into Ingro, buying the shares? And what was your vision when you started buying those Ingro shares? Well, Ingro was a, a, a very well-known brand and were really a competitor. Hmm. So in the same line of business, it just became uh, fairly obvious to me because the, the environment within which we were operating had changed. Gas availability had changed. Mm. And the only way to grow in the, in the same sector was to buy other competitors. Through acquisition of sorts. So that's what was uh, and. Engro at the time was mostly in fertilizer as well. Yes, of course it was good on Engro chemical, Pakistan Limited, okay. chemical meaning basically fertilizer. They had an, everybody had gone through an employee buyout from mm -hmm. Exxon. And uh, they, there, was, uh, there were aspirations within Engro to diversify. So they went into um, a joint venture with Volpac, uh, for a chemical terminal, hmm. they went to a joint uh, with Mitsubishi to set up the uh, PVC. Interesting. And and slowly your role started increasing, your shares started increasing. You join the board, eventually become chairman, and it seems like this is when you transitioned into more formal form of entrepreneurship, and. I wanted to ask about the dark side of entrepreneurship because pretty quickly you had this gas crisis of sorts in one of the projects. There's um, Ingros in five different expansion opportunities you mentioned, and there's this $1.1 billion urea project that you uh, initiated. And in 2007 it started, in 2010 it was completed. but it almost went bankrupt, or Ingro rather, almost went bankrupt. I think you were three weeks away, and that's because the government wasn't providing the gas as they had agreed to. And so I was just wondering if you could 
talk a little bit about this. You said these were the three most difficult years in your life. And what were you feeling at this time? What were some of the thoughts and emotions as you were journeying through this entrepreneurial experience? Well, um, I think a lot of young people don't realize that life's not a straight line. Uh, one sees an opportunity, one endeavors, to, uh, makes a decision that one wants to capture that opportunity because it'll contribute towards either stabilization or growth or whatever it is of one's business. And one just sees the nice upside about it and all oh, you're successful in all these results. But you don't see the story of how you got there mm. and the pain and the challenges that one had to go through. And those challenges are very important because that's the way humans grow. If you don't have a challenge, just look at your body. If you don't exercise, it'll go flabby. Mm. You have to keep pushing yourself and pushing yourself to keep it young and fit and, you know, relevant. Mm. So it is with everything in life. So, um, and I love to take that example of, a, of the butterfly. Mm. You know, there's this individual who's watching the butterfly coming out of its cocoon. And it saw how much the butterfly was struggling to come out. So he felt a great sense of, of you know, of mercy almost. So what he did was he made a slight cut in the cocoon and that enabled the butterfly to come out much more easily, which it did. The only thing was it flopped onto the table and now it couldn't fly. Hmm. The struggle in the cocoon was to develop its muscles and it had to go through that process, that pain develop those muscles otherwise it would not be able to fly mm. and so that butterfly which flopped onto the table do you think it has a chance of survival mm. not at all so did that person really act in the interest of the of the butterfly well he thought he did which is now evident he didn't mm. i think they're not quite so obvious so you have to realize you have to go through these because that developed your willpower, it developed your stamina, it developed your self-confidence, it developed your capabilities to think, it developed your ability to understand yourself, to know what are the principles you're going to live by. Mm. And are you prepared to invest in them in terms of serious, you know, pain, mm. not physical pain, but there is a pain. So, in this period, I, I, had, I was very clear in my mind what mattered to me. And what mattered to me was the fact that we were not going to compromise on any account, anywhere. We were going to stay strictly within the law. Mm. And although uh, the uh, Sin High Court we went to the Senate High Court for performance contract and they gave a judgment uh, 
wholly in favor of the supply of gas, mm. the federal government at that time went to the Supreme Court and got a stay order. So the, the legal options were gone. And without the gas, obviously, and you can't no, operate There was no other anything. options. Hmm. So we just keep trying and trying and trying, knocking on different doors to hmm. try to get the gas restored. Hmm. But there was an enormous crisis in the country on gas availability. And there's so many people who are competing for it. Hmm. And you see, this is where you can uh, tell governments one from another. And that is, does the government live up to its commitments? Does the government honor its agreements? Mm. Or does it get swayed by um, competing forces, lobbying forces w within? In that case, the government got, it was not honoring its agreement. So we had no other uh, capabilities except to keep knocking on doors and and uh, trying to justify why we should be prioritized above others in the supply of gas based on agreements, based on commitments. And you were three weeks away from bankruptcy. Well, naturally, there comes a point where the bankers will go along with you and say, yes, you're, you're very credible, you're great company, we believe in you, we know you've done the project very well, mm. you know, but you within time, within budget, we know all of that, we've seen all the um, projections you would given us, we know it's a, it's a, it's a very um, uh, bankable uh, investment, but now we want the results. And that's understandable, and they say we need to have the results, we need, uh, what are the results? Repayment, mm. uh, payment, uh, servicing the loan in terms of interest, and also principal payments. And we were unable to do that because there was no, there was no gas, therefore no sales, mm. no production, therefore nothing to sell. Mm. So naturally started going down a financial hole. And so they started to compound and, you know, naturally the bankers became, with time became increasingly nervous mm. and so uh, we naturally had to renegotiate all the loans, all the terms and conditions and loans, interest rates and all of that. And we were fortunate that we were able to complete that uh, three weeks before uh, default. It's incredible. And that default would have you know, had a compounding impact straight away. Mm. Everybody would then Say, so, all right, pay me, uh, pay me back my loans also. Mm. So it's a trigger. Yeah. But that's why we say it's three weeks away from bankruptcy. Yeah. Because we, how can you repay 100 billion rupees? From where? I can imagine the relief and uh, gratitude after you were able to renegotiate. And that three years of struggling, as you said, building the muscle. And I wanted to talk about maybe a moment we were as not, a butterfly. We were not in, the, in, in that three-year period there to enjoy building muscles. <laughs> I'm sure you were This weren't. was imposed upon us. <laughs> I'm sure you weren't. <laughs> but a moment of perhaps flying is Ingrow Foods. 
And I wanted to talk about that, your diversification into dairy. This seems like a really interesting inflection point around 2006. The approval was there. And, and yet the competition was, I mean, Nestle is, is in, into this dairy business in a real way. And of course, we know the, the sort of how the story unfolds now, looking back. You went from zero to $400 million turnover in just eight years and 50%, 56% of the market share. And I'm sure these numbers have, have changed. Um, but I, I kind of want to focus on that moment in time, which is you know, how, how did you decide that this was a good initiative to get into? What were, what were some of the decision factors, pro-con analysis uh, and what was your strategy for, for taking on Nestle? Well, the question is, is the, uh, the, the milk market or the dairy market had a very, like everything in life, small beginning. And it had to be developed. And uh, Nestle, had t uh, well, Nestle had taken a lot of uh, effort to develop that, particular supplies, and then you're talking about Nestle having a global knowledge on how to package and market uh, uh, milk. No problem for Nestle. The problem was the production. Hmm. So they put in a lot of effort developing that. I would say best part of 10 years. Hmm. When we went into milk, it, uh, by that time there was also Halib was also in the milk business. And in fact, Halib had the, 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 the largest market share. Oh, interesting. Not even Nestle, it was Halib. Hmm. And uh, then Nestle came in, and then we came in. And so it became a market, uh, and the others came in. But these are the three larger players. And in that market, we competed. And by the grace of God, we competed. Uh, competently. Hmm. Did you think that the market was fragmented or that there was a huge untapped portion of the market? Well, actually, the, the, the thing is that you've got a, a massive population hmm. and the population is, is, is uh, relying on Gowala milk. Now, Gowala milk uh, is not exactly you know, uh, nutritious from the point of view that it is laced with chemicals and it's laced with, you know, um, uh, um, microbes, etc., which affect the health negatively. Hmm. So going into this business was, well, you know, there's a, for me anyway, there's a distinct pleasure to know that we're bringing in uh, organized and uh, technologically sound um, and proven processes to giving good quality milk, mm. which would then benefit uh, the young, particularly. Mm. So that, you know, that, that those uh, social overrides for me are very important. Mm. I, I, I tend to um, feel good about it over a considerable period of time. Mm. Now, when we came, even today, the 
conversion of milk, so they say, only 8% of the total production of the country is converted into packaged milk. Hmm. So 92% is going the form of untreated hmm. milk. Now, uh, if we can raise that to 20%, the market, all of us put together, it will be a great contribution to the, to the health of the country. Hmm. Yeah. So, you know, uh, when you can combine business with those type of social considerations where you're really trying to contribute positively to, to the people. Hmm. And you know that you're doing the right thing and, and you're trying to do the best that you can. Uh, and then there's a whole issue of the fact that the milk, you know, there's, a, there's not only the production, but there's also the uh, packaging and then there's, there's the marketing of it. And you set up this whole uh, uh, integrated supply chain. I mean, that's a contribution too. Mm. That's a value. So, you know, that is, we, when we were going in, we said, yeah, we're a chemical. We're known for our chemical fertilizers. And we're going for milk. People are going to turn and say, hey, just a minute. There seems to be an aberration here. Mm. But we took the risk. Mm. And the net result has been is that Angle ceases to have the image of being just a chemical fertilizer producer. Milk brought a profound change. Mm. And Angle now became more of a of a, an image of a conglomerate rather than just a chemical fertilizer producer. So it had a, a very good impact on that too. And then over time what happened was that the, uh, uh, the competitive environment changed in terms of that Nestle and Engel became the leaders and Khalid uh, lost tremendous market share. Mm. So you have so part of competition and yeah, I love I love that it's an example of expanding the pie rather than just slicing it, and a great example of how business can um, can really contribute to society and add value and help grow a market that that doesn't necessarily exist in a way that's also in the best interest of humanity and can we talk about another initiative that you've done to develop those private citizens and the business ecosystem which is the Karachi school of business and leadership you've mentioned in a dawn interview that we in pakistan have good managers who could manage the enterprise well but we need to have world-class managers who will thrive in a global economy and be thought leaders. And so this is around 2007, I think that you, maybe you had the idea much earlier um, for, for the School of Business. The idea started in 2008. 2008. So, so what was the problem yeah. you were trying to address? Were, were you really clear from the beginning exactly how you, and 
exactly how you wanted to do it. I, I guess I'm wondering what was the problem and were you clear on the approach, how you wanted to address the problem? I'm well, let me dilate on that a little. When I said to you a little earlier that, you know, you have to go up through a process, it could be painful, etc. What are you doing? You're really growing intellectually. Mm. Your understanding of the your environment and, you know, the, the, the uh, people, it's growing. And that's what's called experience. So you need to have experiences. If you don't have those experiences, then you're really not growing at all. So you're dealing with today with tools of yesterday, thought process of yesterday. That's why you'll find every business goes through these challenges. And it is very important to go through those challenges. Otherwise, you will not develop the overall capability to ensure the survival of the business. So when you're talking about the business school, well, the situation is this, is that I understand that the fundamental difference between a top performing economy and a not so well-performing economy is people. You could give both of them exactly the same assets, the same amount of money, the same everything, but have two different sets of people and you get two different sets of results. Mm. Why? Because it is people that is a defining difference. Mm. And we're fortunate that we can go from where we are today and if I may say, our economy is really rather small. If you hear of uh, Ambani's speech on uh, India, they're talking about the fact that the Indian economy is now two and a half trillion dollars, and it's going to very soon become five trillion, and then it's going to become ten trillion, and then they're going to become the largest economy in the world. Now look at look at the vision. Sheikh Mohammed has shown you what vision is. How he's developed Dubai, unbelievable, within a period of 30 years. So in one lifetime, you can have a, a significant change. Mm. And that significant change was brought about, if I may say, by Nawaz Sharif in his first term. And then it was brought about again by General Musharraf in his first three years of his what is it? It's inspiring people. Everybody is looking for leaders who will inspire them, who will appreciate them, putting their extra efforts. So it's people that matter. So what could be a greater uh, um, uh, expression of that importance than setting up a business school? What turn out and say, come, we will endeavor to, to expose you to principles of business and how you can go out and you too can then set up uh, business enterprises and employ people 
and also develop them. So business is not just making money. So we've got to realize that it is people that make the difference. It is leadership that makes the difference. And what the whole idea of the school is to endeavor to, uh, to expose people so that we shorten the time taken for a person to learn how to lead and how to, how to conduct uh, uh, um, positive economic activity. We tend to compress that through the medium of, of formal education, which is given in a business school. So when they come out, they're much more proficient, mm. much more capable of going out and contributing to the development of the nation. I think it's fascinating. And um, I wanted to just ask a little bit around about your strategy around launching and how the, the kind of process or your approach. And I think you mentioned initially that you were debating if, if you should collaborate with IBA, but you decided IBA needed some competition. And I'm wondering what that decision or that process was like. And then, and then you moved towards international partnership. And there were some challenges there in the sense of um, initially maybe having difficulty finding the right international partner. You, you wrote about going to Babson and MIT and um, different parts of Boston. And so I'm wondering, you know, when you were thinking about the strategy, how to set up this MBA program or this school of business, is collaboration or is partnership important? And local IBA versus international, what was what were some of the thought processes back then? Well, when the group of business people got together in 2008, said that, you know, we should endeavor to uh, contribute to human resource development with our business school, the two ways of going forward, either you set up a new one or you, so, uh, you support the ones that are already in existence. Mm. So that's why the IPA came out, okay. said, should we do that or should we? It was decided at that point that we would set up a new one. So that was the process, wasn't uh, And competition is always very um, welcome. Mm. So uh, they decided uh, that they put that responsibility on me, not that I wanted it. I didn't ask for it. I made the mistake of stepping outside the, the meeting room at that time <laughs> and to answer a call. And I came back, they said, you're chairman. I said, what, chairman of what? It's of this, uh, this initiative. I said, what initiative? There is no initiative, There's nothing. I said, well, you're chairman. <laughs> and they all looked at their watches and said, well, five minutes later, they said, well, we'll leave it to you. Got them, they all walked out. <laughs> and then I was saddled with this responsibility. I'm a business person, what do I, what do I know about academic institutions? I know nothing. Mm. But I tried to apply business principles to it, whatever experience I had. And I said there are two ways of going about it. Either we try to, we should have something that should be world class. So, you know, you start a pretty globally competitive uh, um, graduates. So that was the, 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 the focus. And there's two ways of going about that. Either you set up the school and 
then you try to uh, put the processes and people and faculty and all together and strive to get to a, a, a world-class competitive levels. Mm. Or you go out and you partner with a, an entity which is already world-class and try to take a, a you know, to uh, reduce the time it would take to get to that. Mm. Now in the first one, as, as you do that and you get to world-class level, you'll find that the world-class level, uh, the, the bar has gone up. Mm. So you're perpetually chasing that bar, mm. trying to get there. The second one, you're starting with that. Now it's a question of sustaining it. Mm. There's, a two, there's really two. The difference between the two is that the second is more expensive than the first. Mm. Why is the second more expensive? Because you have to pay the entity that's going to collaborate with you. They're not going to be free of charge. But it saves you a lot of time developing. Mm. And usually when you, you spend time developing, you, you don't necessarily develop the best approach or the DNA to do that. So therefore, we wanted to. Uh, we went out, and that's when I went to. That was in uh, March two thousand and eight, when this decision was made, where they put the responsibility on me. I went out to the United States, met, met various entities, and uh, then came back. And can I, you can you talk about the? I don't know. If frustration is the right word, but that experience of going to some of the institutions in the U.S. and and not having the desired outcome that you know frustration wanted. what was I mean, why should one get frustrated frustration to me is a very negative I, I guess that's the wrong word it's but not the the challenge challenge so, okay. disappointment well, that's something. it's not a disappointment it's the chance to succeed the reason i ask so you is, look at it positively again the reason I ask is that I think a lot of entrepreneurs do feel frustrated. I'm well, not putting that on you, no, but I'm just wondering if they if feel frustrated, then they are expending very important positive energy in a negative way. Hmm. So when you were getting so the, I the nose, you I said never it's a get challenge. I never get frustrated. And you would leave those meetings. And I, I look at it from, and the other thing I do is I look at it from the other person's point of view. Mm. So I'm sitting there, I said, I'd like you to uh, collaborate with you and this, that, the other. I look from his point of view and looking back at me and turn and say, why should I collaborate with you? Mm. You're a starter. I don't want to waste my time on a starter. I've got many other opportunities. Why should I waste my time with you? Mm. So I don't look at it, therefore, as a frustration or a failure. I say, I've got to find a way so that he, the listener, he or she, will be motivated to work with me. Hmm. That's the difference. And to do that, you've got to work hard. You've got to think, you've got to work hard, you've got to understand what the opportunities are. And you develop your mind so that when that, that particular occasion comes, hmm you're able to respond in the best way. And so when so I went there, all right, so I went to MIT. Yeah, I was going to, I was just about to ask. They wanted $20 million on the table. How am I going to get $20 million? Hmm. I didn't have a brick. I had nothing. Hmm. There was absolutely no money. I didn't even have a legal entity. What am I going to put $20 million on the table? Hmm. And I can understand from that point of view. Why not? 
because they want you to have assurance that you're going to go through with this. They're going to put their name down. They want to make, and I found in their shoes, I want the same thing. Mm. The, the assurance that my name will not be, uh, you know, disadvantaged. They wanted to my know brand. that there there was twenty million dollars for the whole initiative, or they were ask, actually asking our side of the. We never got to anywhere. Uh-huh. They were supposed to send me a uh, a proposal, never they never came. Interesting. I don't know. After the twenty million, I found out from other sources. They didn't quote it. So, so like an entrepreneur, you pivoted. Yeah, you you, uh, you sense opportunity. Countries even it went. Yeah, you sense opportunity to, to Cambridge. Again, I went on the off chance, huh. and there's a friend there. And he said, "Well, I'll arrange for you to come here." I said, "Fine." So I went over on the first of September, two thousand and eight, hmm. and uh, I met uh, Cambridge people, and there was a lunch also uh, attended by really senior people in Cambridge, including the pro um, uh, vice chancellor and uh, uh, three deans and and senior professors, about nine of them. And they grilled me over lunch to why yeah. I want to set up a business school. So after that, I just felt, it's really quite a pleasure, I felt. What was There's the a possibility. Of what was the that. difference this time? Did you change your approach? Did you change how no, you presented you, it? The pro- approach has to be always uh, uh, tailored to the audience. Hmm. The message is consistent. The approach has to be tailored. I'm just wondering if you learned so, anything from MIT, from Babson. No, from I learned nothing. As such. Experiences that you incorporated, nothing, or if it was just the right no, that was, person sitting on the other side of the table. That was the end of end of uh, end of March, beginning April, mm. and I went to Cambridge on the first of September. And uh, when I talked to them, evidently my pitch wasn't right, and I got a response, wouldn't I? Mm. Yeah, so that's a learning. What happened? I mean, to me, the mere fact that MIT said they'd send a proposal is a success. The proposal never came through. Hmm. Perhaps there were changes in MIT or whatever it is, and the people you talked to, they moved on, and the new ones who took their place knew nothing about it. I'm not going to blame them. Hmm. I'm just going to say I just didn't get the job done. Anyway, so, so you went in September. If I go into MIT now, I'll do a much better job. Huh. I know how to do it. Yeah. So you are learning some things along the way. Well, you're always learning. Yeah. You're learning every single day. Of course. So you went in September. You then you went back in October and met the dean, and he, uh, he yeah. or she apparently asked he. you a, a tipping point question, which was, "What makes your business school exciting?" He said that to me, Honor Demeyer. He's uh, he was the then dean of the uh, Judge Business School at Cambridge, and he said he said saying, "I've got so many people who want to do collaboration with Cambridge." Hmm. So I've got my whole wall full of MOUs, plastered up. Hmm. 
He said, why should it be with you? What makes your school exciting? Hmm. Now, it's a tipping, what I call tipping point question. If you say the right way, you go one way. If you say the wrong way, you go the other way. Hmm. Which is that if the wrong answer, they'll show you the door. And the right answer, there's a possibility that you get a collaboration with them. Hmm. But apparently I said the right thing. This is what I said to him, is I want to take education to scale. Hmm. So he said, how? I said, because what we want to do, we want to produce world-class graduates who would go into the business of education. Because the government fights, the governments, provincial and federal, can't do the whole job by themselves. Hmm. It'll have to be done by this citizen of Pakistan hmm. who is known as the private sector. Hmm. Anyway, so what happened was that uh, he liked the answer hmm. and I sensed that there was an opportunity to get a collaboration in Cambridge. And so I said, I'm going to come back here every month, keep it alive. So then I, that was the 13th of October, I went back on the 21st of November and then two people from here went back on the 19th of December and then their deputy dean uh, came to Karachi mm. on the 6th of January 2009 and he, I had a dinner for him here at the cinema club. And he introduced the concept. Then we were uh, we followed up with signing an MOU on the 9th of February 2009 in Cambridge. And we then started the negotiation of the contract, and its signing took place on the 4th of April 2009 here at the World Continental Karachi. Hmm. And on 30th of May 2009, Anna de Maya himself, along with um, uh, uh, Professor Kamal Munir, came and gave the first um, uh, seminar here. And there were about 55 to 60 uh, chairman and chief executive attended here at the Continental. I love that story, and I especially love how you went there every month to keep things alive. And that feels really important. In the See, that again lesson. comes back to what I said earlier, stamina, sustaining it. Hmm. Not knowing whether it's going to come out successful or not. You have to keep struggling. Yeah. You imagine that uh, Dean Arna de Meyer had to move 700 people in Cambridge to sign that agreement. 700 people needed Every to single that. faculty member is part of the position. Wow. That's incredible. And he moved, we imagine you negotiated the contract, you, he moved the whole of those people, and he flew out and signed on the 4th of April, which was what? February, March, less than two months? Hmm. Unbelievable. And the speed at which you were able to launch was unbelievable as a whole. I mean, 2008, the idea 
is there 2012 you're you're launching with your first well we started the class. campus building huh. uh, on the end of march 2000 and uh, I think 2011, 2011 right 2011 yeah. greenfield started with, and in exactly 18 months hmm. the 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 Mm. And the first MBA class started on the 20th of September 2012. Mm. And imagine you had to go through and get a special act passed through the Sindh Assembly to make it a degree awarding institution. Mm. There is uh, something that you said in, in your Harvard speech about managing the ego and um, this idea of the organization being subordinate to an ego. And you said um, that your approach is that the organization is more important than someone's ego. The ego has to be sacrificed for the corporation. And I think this is something that entrepreneurs struggle with a lot by nature of being an entrepreneur. You, you, you think that all the problems can be solved and oftentimes that you're the one to solve them. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are these days on how to sacrifice the ego or how have you been able to do that? I'm sure it's a daily challenge, not just that you do it once and it's done. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what has that process been like for you? Well, I think everybody has an ego and the ego is a great, uh, um, power within you to go out and achieve. Mm. And actually recognition is a very, a very, uh, natural expectation. So you can have a financial return, you can also have uh, you know, a reputation return, you can have a, a profile return, there are many forms. Mm. And I think they're all relevant. And I think every single individual not only has a right, but you have the opportunity to try to do his best or her best. Like everything in life, it has, an, it has a downside. And if that ego becomes hubris, or becomes arrogance, then you crossed a certain red line mm. in which then you start to think that you're becoming so relevant that uh, everything else is secondary. And if you get into that uh, framework, it breeds its own negative negativity in your mind constantly and it will ultimately bring you to ruin. You've also mentioned this idea of intellectual honesty that, and the role that it might play in managing the ego. You, you said that one should have the courage to listen to the truth instead of turning a deaf ear to it because criticism is vital for the improvement of an individual. And I think that this is incredibly important, not just for managing the ego, but for the for the journey of 
of growing an enterprise and, and growing yourself and improving yourself. The humility that it takes to listen to the truth even when you don't want to hear it. And I just wondered if you had any last advice. If I hear in a group, everybody agrees with me that I've learned nothing. I have to hear people who don't agree. Alfred P. Sloan did that. He, they were discussing a particular issue at the board level. Uh, and everybody agreed. So he said, I defer this point to the next board meeting to give everybody time to think about it. Mm. And the next board, they were all going to say yes. The next board meeting, they said no. Because they applied their minds. Mm. Now, the part that hurts most, it's not this discussion. The part that hurts is that when you make decisions and people come back and then criticize you. Mm. That's a different issue. Now, the question is the issue of the criticism. If, the critici if you are at a high level within an organization, the higher you go, the more you must expect people to criticize you. Because you don't have perfect knowledge. Mm. Yeah? What it didn't make, it's risk-taking. So you expect people to criticize. You must expect people to know, or you should know, that people can connect the dots looking backwards. They can't connect the dots looking forward. And that's the defining difference mm. between people and people in their ability to make decisions. Because you can't connect all the dots looking forward. You don't know. Looking back, it's perfect knowledge. You have, we can connect all the dots. Mm. Steve Jobs said that. Mm. Yeah? So when you're making decisions, you're looking forward. The outcomes may be different, so you'll be criticized. But then people are looking backwards. And the people doing the criticism are not necessarily those who have ever taken the decision anyway. But what you've got to realize is that number one, you've got to accept that as a fundamental part of your responsibilities. Mm. A criticisms will come. And if they don't, you should get worried. Why? Is there a lack of communication? Mm. Why am I not getting this feedback? And with that feedback, you can improve. Yeah? But you've got to realize that that criticism, so long as it is professional, you have no problem accepting it. Mm. It's when you take it personally that you become unprofessional. Any last principle or idea you want us to keep in mind as we move through our entrepreneurial journeys in pursuit of yes. trying to make a difference? Yes, there is. Then in my opinion, you've got to realize that you're talking about uh, performing over a lifetime not performing in three years or two years or five years or ten years. Mm. That you've got to realize that what type of reputation do you want at the end of 50 years of work? What do you want to be known for mm. when you pass away? Mm. Okay. So when you're talking about such a long road and you're talking about the fact that you cannot connect the dots going forward, 
you've got to have in your mind a developer's capability to be able to consistently make decisions so you're always on the same path and don't get diverted to the left or to the right or to the up or to the down but you consistently follow that path so you've got to develop within your mind certain grand norms or I call reference points and every challenge that comes across you're going to compare that the, the, the decision, the alternatives you could take, but the alternatives against your reference points. Mm. So then that ensures consistency. What will happen is that consistency will then incrementally keep building over a period of 50 years mm. and give you the reputation that you want. Mm. Sir, thank you so much for connecting some of the dots for us. The journey uh, that you are on has, has been incredible and lots of moments of struggle, as you've said, and incredible, I think, butterflies that have been born and released and are flying now as a result. And I hope that we can do our part to push through the struggle and, and become um, similar butterflies and release that type of energy that you have. So thank you so much. <laughs>